Y'all, I am really excited about this series in Judges. There are so many good stories throughout, and we're going to get to them, but just not yet. Last week, if you were with us, you remember that uh, we had an introduction, and it began after the death of Joshua, and we began to walk through the book. Well, this week, we're going to find that we are in the midst of a second introduction, and it's going to run from chapter 2, verse 6, to chapter 3, verse 6. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, you can use one of our pew Bibles there. And if you don't have one, uh, that'll be our gift to you. It's pretty early on in the Bible. And uh, it's going to be on page 170 in the pew Bible there. And so uh, what we've done is uh, gone through the first introduction. And this week we're going to go through the second introduction. If you're one of those people that are using the pew Bible or any Bible, you're unfamiliar. The large numbers are going to be the chapter numbers. And the small numbers are going to be the verse numbers. So you can follow along with us. Uh, What we do here is called expositional preaching, and so what we try to do is capture the main idea of the text or what the author intended to communicate to us, find that meaning and how it's significant to us. And so as we walk through Judges this morning, keep those things in mind. Uh, We're not going to be able to read the whole section of Scripture today uh, because there's quite a bit of it, and so in favor of time, we'll only read key verses, but you can still follow along right there and read the paragraph and pull out the author's thought and his intent along with me as you follow along. This morning, I want want us to take a look at three things uh, from chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 6. And that is the power of a good story, the nature of idolatry, and the mercy of judgment. Power of a good story, the nature of idolatry, and the mercy of judgment. We're going to be dealing with this question throughout all of Judges. Will Israel be faithful like Joshua? Or for you and me and for them, I like to phrase it this way. What will be our story? That's the story before Israel. What will be their story? Before we begin, though, let us have a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word that you have inspired it. That you have communicated yourself to us through it. That we can be more sure when we read the book that you have written about the events that are in it than if we had been there ourselves. We can be sure that it speaks to our lives now. We can be sure that this word will lead us unto salvation. That this word will give us hope. Father, this morning we pray that you would communicate to sinners like us. Father, we thank you that you have chosen to put your grace on sinners like us. Father, we thank you that while we were weak and at the right time, You died for us on the cross, that you bought peace for us. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit this morning, that you might help us through your word to become in practice what you have declared us to be through your son, Jesus Christ, just and holy. Help us to become like you. Father, if we don't know you this morning, we pray that we might come to know you for the first time. God, help us this morning to figure out what is our story. Amen. So we're going to start with the power of a good story. Look with me at verse six of chapter two. When Joshua died, I'm sorry, when Joshua dismissed the people and the people of Israel each went to his inheritance to take possession of the land and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnah Heresh. 
in the hill country in Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. This section again begins with after the death of Joshua, right? It's going to tie us to what was the first introduction and also to the book of Joshua, which precedes the book of Judges. After the death of Joshua. It's again repeated here to tip us off that this introduction is going to take place along the same time as the one that we dealt with last week. So while the people are failing to drive out, failing to drive out, failing to drive out, you'll see that repeated if you look back at chapter 1. While they're failing to drive out the people of the land, these are kind of the other things that are going on. The things that are going on in their heart. It's a bit of a commentary on the introduction we dealt with last week. They're happening at the same time. But it's not only an introduction this time. It's also kind of a summary and a commentary on the entire book of Judges. Because it goes a step further than the previous introduction. It's going to reveal to us the cycle of sin that we're going to encounter story after story, time after time. It's going to show us Israel's great rebellion. It begins after the death of Joshua. It's to raise our curiosity once more. What will be Israel's story? Will they be faithful like Joshua? Verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went out after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. These verses show us a people that have abandoned God in order to bow down to man-made gods, non-gods, false gods, idols. So I think verse 10 provides the answer to that question. Will Israel be faithful like Joshua was faithful? The answer comes right there, verse 10, we just read it. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How is it possible for the sons and daughters of Joshua's generation to not know the Lord? I think our answer is here. The reason is twofold. The story was forgotten. It was unknown, unfelt, unexperienced. The story was forgotten. And secondly, the story was untold. First, the story was forgotten. Now, when the author writes that a generation arose that didn't know the Lord, he's using the word know in a particular way. He does not mean that they didn't know about what God had done, that they didn't know about the parting of the Red Sea or the crumbling of the walls at Jericho. But rather, they didn't know the saving acts of God. That the saving acts of God were not precious or central to them. They had not learned to revere And to rejoice over what God had done. Put simply, it's likely that they had heard the stories. But they had forgotten the power of those stories. The purpose of those stories. And as a result, they had abandoned the author of those stories. They had abandoned God. 
As Christians, we also have a story that has been passed down to us from generation to generation. The gospel of Jesus Christ. His deliverance of us from slavery. The slavery to our sin. The story of his taking our punishment. The story of his living the perfect, holy, and acceptable life for us. So that by faith in him, we might be presented before God as holy and blameless, acceptable. The story of his victory over death and his ascension to the Father's right hand. The story of his coming again to set all things in harmony that we might live happily ever after. Yes, we know the story. But do we know the story? Is it central to us? Is it precious to us? Have we experienced it? Or is the gospel story something that you just intellectually assent to? Is it something that you just know about? Something you just admit happened historically? Is it what guides and directs your life? Does it have power in your life? Or is it just a story? Do you know of Jesus? Or do you know Jesus? The Israelites had surely known the story but not in a way that had any power in their lives. And thus they abandoned God. Christian, have you been walking around not knowing? Is the gospel story the power of God unto salvation in your life? Or has it become dim, dull, and foolishness after some time spent in the culture of death? After some time spent holding hands with the world and its gods. Is it just a story or is it your story? Is it good news or is it good news for you? Secondly, the people forgot the story because the story was often untold. See, there's plenty of blame to go around here when a generation that arises that doesn't know the Lord. And part of the blame is on them for not knowing the story and holding it as precious. But part of the blame has to go on the previous generation. It's true that the next one had forgotten it and had hardened their hearts. But it's also true that the previous generation was responsible for passing on the story. And they failed to minister faithfully. After all, God had commanded Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, and you'll be familiar with this verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Here it is. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And then down in verse 20 of that same chapter. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of these testimonies? What's the meaning of these stories? And the statutes and the rules that our Lord God has commanded you. Then you shall say to your son, when we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he had sworn to give to our forefathers. And the Lord commanded us to dwell and to do all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. 
And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all that is commanded before our Lord. As he has commanded us. These verses are spoken to Israel. And they tell them. And us how to pass on our faith. How do we pass on our faith? The same for us as it was for Israel. By loving God as a way of life. After all, you talk about what you love, right? C.S. Lewis says it best. I love this comment is that praise is the culmination of joy. They can't like for me, oftentimes I have joy when I watch sports. I love it, right? But I can't, I can't, sometimes I just can't sit there quietly. I'll have to exclaim at the end of a good play. Whoa, what a throw! Because that's the culmination of my pleasure in that. Praise is the culmination of joy. And we talk about what we love. And when we love God as a way of life, we won't be able to keep the gospel of God from our lips. Israel could have been much more effective in passing on the story had they lived it as a way of life. Had the praise of God as the culmination of their joy been on their lips. Simply put, the people could have been careful, as Joshua said in the previous book, 23 verse 11, to be very careful to love the Lord their God. Meaning that they hadn't treasured him. Treasuring the word of God in our hearts means living it out practically. So that it's not only on our lips, but that it's evident in our daily activity. That we seek to bring glory to God by offering every breath, every step, and every thought unto him as an act of worship. Passing on the story means to live the story. Which means telling the story. Culminating our joy. Because it will be on our lips. See, the story that is untold is a story that is forgotten. If we want our children, our neighbors, our communities to be changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must tell the story. Israel was to pass on the message to their children. This message of God's deliverance. Yet, for us, we too are to pass the story on to our children. But it's also to the next generation. To all nations. See, Israel was kind of just for Israel, right? But we know with the fullness of time, with the coming of Jesus Christ, that this message is of God's rescue for everyone. All peoples, all nations, all races. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus loves all the children of the world. The gospel isn't for Israel alone. See, the next generation that we are to pass this gospel on to is not only our children. The next generation of Christ followers of the church is whoever hears and responds to the gospel next. The lost are the next generation. You hear that? The lost are the next generation. They're the ones that do not know the story. And they're the ones we ought to tell the story to. The story that we know that we love, and that we experience in Christ. The lost are the next generation, whether they are 2, 22, or 202. Whether they are black, white, Cuban, or Asian. We must pass this story on to them. You see, we are to tell the story. After all, Jesus' life, 
His death and His resurrection is for them also. Non-Christian, this is good news for you. The gospel is for you. Jesus' death is for you. Christian, this is good news to you. Have you forgotten it? Do you know the gospel story? Do you know Jesus? Have you experienced and told anyone? Is it on your lips? Friends, who will you tell this story to this week? Who will you share Christ with? It can be a friend or a family member that already knows Jesus. The gospel encourages us. It strengthens us. It's the means by which we become in practice what God has declared us to be in truth. And it's the means by which God saves sinners, which is you and I. Messy people. A hopeless people. Until Christ steps in. And his story becomes our story. Friends, share it. It may be the way that God has chosen to rescue someone. Whether from despair or from a stagnant Christian life. Or whether from a life that is simply filled with idols that are devoted to the world. The same gospel that strengthens saves. God will use the gospel story to build up his people. To grow the branches that are already on the vine. And he will use the gospel story to reach the lost. And graft new branches into the vine. And that's our hope here as a church. That the gospel would be central and that it would grow us up in Christ and that would also graft new members into us. The gospel story is for broken people that don't have everything together. It is for the messy. It is for the weak. It is for the lonely. It is for those that know they cannot do this life on their own. For those that need a savior. The gospel story is for us. It is for you. Does it have power in your life? Are you telling the story? Israel knows of the Exodus story. They don't truly know it. They are a people that have forgotten the story and abandoned God to worship idols. It's important for us, I think, to learn from their example and to think about the nature of this idolatry. The nature of idolatry. Look with me at verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with his judge, and he saved his people from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who were afflicting and oppressing them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Idolatry is when we worship stuff instead of Jesus. See, idolatry is marked by a rejection of God's grace and a life like that of a married prostitute. A rejection of God's grace and a life like that 
of a married prostitute. Idolaters reject God's grace because they do not listen. See, the people had forgotten the story and they had been serving other gods, many gods, non-gods, false gods. And they came across this problem. The false gods could neither satisfy nor help. Instead, they used the people. And their unfaithfulness brought a just judgment from God. Israel would be oppressed and they would groan from the oppression. We, we read later on in Judges that this groaning was their cry out to God, a form of repentance so that God would help them. And graciously, our long-suffering, patient, enduringly kind, our God who has a steadfast love that is without end, he would raise up a deliverer. Remember judges, they don't wear cloaks and um, adjudicate court cases in this case. They're military leaders, right? They're the leaders of Israel. He would raise them up to deliver them from the oppressor. Yet the hearts of the people would remain unchanged. Look, he gives them judges and they will not listen. They reject his grace. See, listening to their judges and being obedient to the commandment of God is how they could have expressed their love for God. That's how we express our love for God, right? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we don't obey, we don't obey the commandments by ourselves, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it is how we express our love for God. For Israel to express their love for God would have been to listen to the judges. But instead they turn away and they express their hatred by not listening. They reject the grace of God. Such is the nature of idolatry. Idolatry is also marked by a life that is like that of a married prostitute. Verse 17 tells us that Israel prostituted itself with other gods. The people of God made themselves as whores of non-gods and of idols. They had been warned by Joshua. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law of Moses. The servant of the Lord commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Instead of listening to the warning, instead of clinging to God, the people have instead attached themselves to idols. See, as a husband is to cling to his wife, so are the people to cling to God and to no other. See, throughout Scripture, God often depicts himself as the bridegroom and his people as the bride to help us understand the despicable nature of our unfaithful harlotry, the despicable nature of our prostitution, of our idolatry. Timothy Keller says it this way, this is a striking and provocative image. Prostitutes then, and often now too, are people whose lives are out of control, who are desperate, and who are giving themselves without getting any real pleasure or love in return. The use of the word prostituted here tells us that when we serve an idol, we come into an intense relationship with it, within which it uses us, but does not truly care for us. We become completely vulnerable to it, little more than a slave to it. When we treasure anything above Jesus, we become enslaved to whatever that thing is. And we are used by it. Our relationship with idols will be intense and it will be unsatisfying. 
Martin Luther used to say it this way, uh, every sin has idolatry at its root. Every time we sin, we're really putting something above God and we're choosing to worship it rather than God. It's true. And today, uh, our idols look a little bit than, different than Israel's did. Many of us are not going to be drawn to a small statue. We're not going to find a, a little statue of an Aphrodite or whatever and bow down to it. Maybe some of us will, but likely not many of us will do that. You see, our idolatry takes a different form. looks a little bit different. See, we take good things and we turn them into God things. We value them more than Christ. Idolatry is when we take good things and treasure them more than Jesus. In our culture, it looks like this. It looks like children. It looks like possessions. It looks like our ambitions, our time, our comfort, our pride, which sometimes masks itself under the guise of self-esteem. Our money, our careers. Let me show this to you a little bit. Money is an easy one to identify because most of us struggle with it. Instead of looking to Jesus for your security and identity, you might look to money for your security and identity. See, we say to ourselves, see, people will really look up to me and know how important I am, how powerful I am if I just get enough money. Or perhaps you say, if I just get enough money, I won't have to worry. And my problems will disappear. Life will be easier. You see, money then becomes the functional savior rather than Jesus. Because instead of looking to Jesus to calm our worry and to make us feel secure, we look to our money. That's an idol. When we value money more than Jesus, when we value anything more than Jesus, it becomes an idol. We would never say this, but the truth of the matter is that in the order of our hearts, in our heart of hearts, the priorities go something like this. Money, or put in your idol, pride, ambition, my time, my comfort, is more important than Jesus. Jesus comes second. See, the gospel story calls us to drive out those false gods and to give exclusive worship to Christ alone so that the list in our heart of hearts reads simply Jesus. Take an honest look at each area of your life and ask two questions of it. Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area? Am I willing to do what he says about my money, about my comfort, about my time? Secondly, am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area? Am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area? Will I do what he tells me with my time? Or does he get only an hour a week on Sunday and no more? Will I do what he tells me with my money? Will I love Jesus with all of my heart if my spouse or my children are taken from me at a time I deem unfit? Or will I turn away from him because he allowed my functioning Savior to pass away? Am I willing to do what he says about every area of my life? And am I willing to accept whatever he sends in any area of my life? Is Jesus my strength and my portion forever? Or have I deemed something else more valuable, more worthy?
God requires exclusive worship. He will not exist or coexist with other idols and false gods. You cannot worship God in money, God in career, God in family. You must worship God alone. Friends, this is a great danger to us. Listen to what Keller writes. The greatest danger is not atheism, but that we ask God to coexist with our idols. It is the greatest danger because it is such a subtle temptation which enables us to continue as church members and simply feel that nothing is wrong. You see, we simply keep going to church. We just bring our idols with us. Hide them from everybody else. Which idols did you bring with you in this morning? What's with you right now? That you're saying, no, 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 don't touch that. Don't talk about my career. Don't talk about my family. What are you guarding? What is more valuable to you than Jesus? It's time to reorder your priorities. You must drive out your idols. When we really know the gospel story, we will love God with our whole heart and will offer him the worship that he alone deserves. Indeed, we will tell the story and we will know the story. That's the blank there. It might not have been clear. That little second blank under the second point, I think. It's know the story. So we're going to tell the story. We're going to know the story. Do not forget the gospel. Do not make room or concession with false gods. We do not negotiate with idols. Let us turn thirdly to the mercy of judgment. The mercy of judgment. Verses 20 through 3, 6. In verse 20, we see that God's anger is kindled against Israel. And his anger here is actually an expression of his love for his people. If you remember way back when, uh, before I was the pastor here, I preached a message about um, anger in our hearts. And we talked about there are two different kinds of anger, right? There's a sinful anger, which is usually the anger that you or I have. And then there is a right anger that gets angry at sin. It's a righteous anger. And that's the type of anger that God is having right now. It's actually an expression of his love for his people. Let me give you an example. Um, If a married person, if a husband and a wife are in a married relationship, and the husband cheats on his wife, she does him a disservice if she's not angry. Love gets angry at the sin. It's an expression of his love for his people. And we see his judgment is just, and it's for their good and for his glory. See, because Israel is unfaithful, God's anger is kindled, rightly. And his judgment is that he will no longer drive out the people of the land. He's not going to let them have the land anymore. It's a hard judgment, but it's a merciful one. You see, we're going to see the mercy of his judgment in two ways. We're going to see it in the form of a test, in a form of teaching. You see, the judgment will test the people, and it will teach the people. First, the test. God will now use the presence of the Canaanites to test Israel. Now, some of you might not have been in school in a really long time, and for For some of us, we may have been in school more recently. But do you remember sitting in a classroom and the teacher up front says, all right, next week on Friday, we are going to have a test on Pythagorean's theorem. You better be ready. What happens, right? 
Maybe you break out into a cold sweat and teeth start to chatter, get a little nervous. For me, I always thought, oh, no. Now I have to give up some time. I'm going to have to study this material. I'm going to actually have to learn what I'm being taught or I'm going to fail. So you have to become disciplined and work in order to pass. The test also kind of lets you know where you were at in the class. Am I learning the material or is it kind of in one ear and out the other? See, likewise, Israel will be tested. They're going to be forced to think about where they are at with God. Are they worshiping him alone? Are they telling the story? Do they know the story? Are they living the story? How is your relationship with God? How would you do on this test? Secondly, God uses the Canaanites, their presence, to teach. Look at chapter 3, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, The nations the Lord left, he left to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previously known battle. Why? It's kind of an odd verse, right? He, he left, he, it says he left the people there so that Israel could learn war. Why? in the hope that this will develop their dependence upon him in every situation. Remember Joshua again, the connection to him is important. Under Joshua's leadership, Israel drove out everybody, right? They were fully dependent on God. The walls of Jericho came down. The sun stood still as they won a battle. Everybody was uh, just fleeing before them. The people were dependent on God and he gave them victory. See, God will use the nations to drive the people, his people, to the end of themselves so that they recognize their need to be utterly dependent upon him as a baby is dependent upon its mother. These nations would test Israel. They would teach Israel. They were for testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord. That's verse 4 of chapter 3 if you're following along. They were for testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So really, the test has only one question, and it can take different forms. Will Israel obey the command of the Lord? Will you obey the Lord's command? Will you be faithful like Joshua? Will you walk in the way of righteousness? Will you live the story? What will your story be? an expression of love to God as you keep his commandments? Or harlotry, idolatry, prostitution? Verses 5 and 6 show us that Israel ultimately fails the test and continues to chase after idols. They serve here as an example of what not to do. They lived among a people of the land and they became like the people of the land. Idolaters. Ignoring the Savior. We also, as Christians, live as citizens in a foreign land. Among a people that love idolatry. Instead of becoming like them, we must live the gospel story. So that the people of the land might know Jesus. Here and throughout Judges, we see this cycle of sin. Which typically looks like this. It follows this pattern. The people sin. Then they turn to God. They cry out to God. 
He forgives them. And then they turn away to God, from God, back to their idols. So they sin. They love idols. Then they cry out. God delivers them. And then they return to sin and forget him again. This cycle probably sounds a little bit familiar to our own lives, right? Sin, repent, repeat. Sin, repent, repeat. Sin, repent, repeat. It reveals to us our need for a judge to rescue us from the enemy, from the oppressor. Our need for someone outside of ourselves. God meets this need. He himself comes to earth in the form of a man to be this true and better judge. Jesus is the true judge. He rescues us by taking death for us. Death on the cross. He also is the true Israel. He breaks the cycle of sin and he obeys for us perfectly. He lives the perfect and holy life to bring us into fellowship with God. He lives the life we should have lived and dies the death we should have died so that we could live happily ever after. So that we could be sons, heirs, princes, and princesses. This is the gospel story. This is the good news. Live the story. I want to close in asking you this. What will be your story? Who will you tell the story to this week? How will you Remember the story. Know it in your bones this week. How will you live the story? Non-Christian, will you drive out your idols and join yourself to Jesus Christ? Christian, will you drive out your idols and repent of giving your heart to these empty things? Will you follow Jesus? As we come to sing our hymn of response, and as you think about these questions, I want you to know that I'm always available to you throughout the week, but I'm especially available to you now during this time if you want to respond in uh, coming forward and praying or praying where you're at.